Welcome to Optimizing, the podcast about leading Africa's digital future. I'm Professor Barry Dwolanski. And I'm Karen Gammy. Season two has the theme, Receiving and Passing the Baton. We're in conversation with people who have shaped or will shape Africa's digital future. Each conversation draws on the metaphor of life as a relay race. Our guests will talk about how they received the baton, who and what influenced them as they started life's journey. We will then discuss their own journey, how they nurtured and grew the baton in their hands. Finally, we will ask them about what it is that they will pass on to the next generation of leaders and experts. Today we are speaking to Chalitsi Marwala. Chalitsi is a South African engineer and computer scientist. In 1989, in his matric year, Chalitsi won the National Youth Science Olympiad and he had the opportunity to attend the London International Youth Science Fortnight. And I'm sure that opened up the world for him. In an instant, this young man from a rural village in uh, the northern part of South Africa, Venda, uh, became a player on the world stage. He went on to study mechanical engineering at Case Western University in Cleveland, Ohio, in the USA. And uh, dare I need to say, he completed that magna cum laude, which means he did really, really well. Uh, he then returned to South Africa to do his master's, which he did at the University of Pretoria. He then went on to Cambridge University for his PhD in AI, and he followed that up with a period of postdoctoral research at Imperial College in London. He then came back to South Africa and he worked at the CSRR and South African breweries before he joined WITS as a professor in the School of Electrical and Information Engineering, where him and I became colleagues. From WITS, he went to UJ, where he rapidly climbed the ranks of academic leadership, and he moved from being Dean of Engineering to the Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research to his current position as the Principal and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Johannesburg. Uh, Chalitsi has received many awards and many honours, including the Mapung Gumbwe Award, which in my mind is a South African knighthood. So if he were in Britain, we would be calling him Professor Sir Chalitsi Marwala. But he has really been broadly recognised by his peers and by leadership in our country and abroad. He is known for his, for his pioneering research in the field of AI, which is applied to many interesting applications from brewing beer to conflict resolution. He's also the deputy chair of the Presidential Commission on the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So to frame this conversation, and before we start speaking to Chalitsi and Kieran, I would like to pose a metaphor and the metaphor is that life is a relay race and when we're young we are handed a baton by those who have gone before us. We, we receive it from our parents, 
our teachers, our mentors and elders. Um, Chalitzi, in this conversation, uh, we will be asking you about the one or more batons that you have received from those who went before you. We'll then ask you to reflect on how you have made you, these batons better and made them your own. And finally, we would like you to imagine handing it over to those who come next. What is it that you will hand over? I'm joined in this conversation by my co-host, Karen Gammy. Karen started quite recently on her journey. She works developing uh, data science and artificial intelligence systems. And it is her and her generation of future leaders and future experts who will be receiving the wisdom and the baton that um, Chalitzi passes on. So after that very long introduction, um, Chalitzi, in many ways you have had a remarkable life and you've been on a remarkable journey. And it's interesting and, and in fact the most remarkable thing is about how your journey started, how you received this uh, this baton. Uh, clearly you were and are a very special person with great gifts and talents. However, in our country then and even now, there are many exceptional young people and very few of them grow up to be as accomplished as you are. Can you talk a bit about the young Chalitzi, your family, your school, your teachers, and the people who influenced and inspired you in those very early days and made it possible for you to start on this amazing trajectory. I uh, thank you very much, uh, Barry and, uh, uh, and Karen. Um, uh, uh, I was born in the part of South Africa called uh, Vanda. It is in the northern part of this uh, country. And I think um, one thing that I really appreciated about growing up in that part of the world was um, the education that I got from my community. I, I was very close to my grandmother. Uh, my paternal grandmother was a very inspiring uh, a woman who never really went to school, uh, but she understood the value of education. She was a very curious uh, uh, woman. In fact, I always say that uh, uh, my first engineering teacher was my grandmother. She used to make clay pots, and I would go with her um, to the river to collect clay. And um, of course, in engineering, we call that material selection, and she would come back and, and formed it into a pot without any, using any complicated 3D uh, AutoCAD uh, softwares to be able to, to make the shape perfect. And then she will put it in the sun, and then she will put it in the furnace, um, and allow it to cool very, very slowly. And, and of, of, of course, that whole idea of cooling pots very slowly is very similar to the engineering concept of annealing. Uh, in fact, in, in AI, we have um, an algorithm, an optimization algorithm called simulated annealing. Uh, that came out of that. So I think uh, my grandmother was, was, was perhaps a very influential person uh, in my life. Uh, my parents also uh, uh, loved education. Uh, my father 
was uh, a math teacher. Uh, so uh, at an earlier um, age, uh, I was curious to see what was inside, uh, 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 you know, those mathematical uh, textbooks. Uh, and I can, I sort of can uh, recall the evolution of the complexity of my understanding of mathematics. Uh, initially, I thought everything um, was, uh, was linear, that you could be able to, uh, uh, to predict things by uh, following the linear relationships. And of course, uh, later on, when I learned about uh, logarithms, I realized that uh, uh, you know, things are not as linear. So, and then I went to high school in, 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 in Tuando, a high school called Mbiri. Mbiri is actually quite a special school. Uh, it was a government school, but actually quite special. I always say that, um, in my own class, which was not a very, very big uh, a class, maybe a class of 100 uh, people, uh, we produced uh, an MIT um, uh, researcher. Uh, we produced uh, the uh, editor of City Press. Uh, we produced uh, one of the CEOs of Daimler. And I think, uh, you know, I was motivated by that, you know, it was not, it was special in the sense that everybody was, uh, was motivated, uh, uh, but, but, but certainly uh, it is important as we uh, structure our education system uh, to, 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 to make sure that uh, we are able to motivate our young people. I was motivated by the classroom that uh, I was in, by the people whom I was interacting with, and so on and so forth. And then finally, uh, when I was finishing matric, uh, I won the Science Olympiad. Uh, last year, I went to my high school, and I met the principal uh, of the high school. Uh, uh, and we went to assembly, and when I was uh, telling the students that uh, that principal was actually my biology teacher, they couldn't believe, they thought I was older than him. Uh, but he took me to uh, an old diary uh, entry uh, uh, at a point where uh, the day it was announced that uh, I won the Science Olympiad. It was quite exciting because I hardly knew Johannesburg and I had to go to, to London. I went to Imperial College, um, was uh, the host of uh, the Science Fortnight. And Betty, you were at Imperial College at the time, at, at the time, you know. But our path, our path did not cross. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, it was um, an eye-opening. I was uh, in the same room with uh, people from East Germany and West Germany, representing two different countries, literally weeks before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, so it was actually quite uh, a defining moment. Uh, for me. Uh, we also saw the emergence of China at that point. Because what was happening at that point was that uh, um, China was, uh, was just uh, uh, opening up. It was 10 years after the opening up. So the, the, young, the young students from China were very, very curious. You could see that these are, these are young people with a mission. And of course, as they say, the rest uh, is history. But when I was at the, attending the Science Week, we were taught about all sorts of things. Uh, I can't remember being taught about artificial intelligence. All I remember was that everybody was talking about 
this new technology that is going to revolutionize the world. And this technology was superconductivity. And of course, uh, as they say, superconductivity uh, never became the big uh, technology uh, it was supposed to be. So uh, all that experience actually shaped my, my future career. Uh, and, and when I arrived in England at that point, I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, but uh, after, after that, I decided that I was going to be an engineer, and I also decided that uh, I'm going to study overseas. And then obviously because of that, uh, I came back, I finished matric, uh, I did quite well, I appeared uh, in newspapers as one of the, um, the, 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 the students who have done well. Uh, and then I went to do A-levels to prepare for myself uh, to, to, do, uh, to, to, to go and study overseas. So I came and lived in Johannesburg for the first time. I, I lived in Houghton. I was at St. John's College here in Houghton uh, doing A-levels. Uh, and after that, I went to University of Cape Town for six months while I was waiting for the academic calendar in North America to open. Uh, of course, I was not really sure whether I was going to I was going to leave because I was, I was, I was told about uh, the scholarship uh, around about March and it took me quite a while to decide whether uh, I should go to North America. Could I, could I step in here? And I, I mean, it's, it's uh, such an interesting and inspirational story. And, and you uh, did something quite unusual for South Africans generally, and that is to do your first uh, degree overseas. And um, you uh, went, as, as we've said, to, um, to the States. You went to, um, to a very good university in the States. Uh, but um, could you speak about your, your choice of, of going overseas to do your undergrad? Why did you uh, make that choice rather than uh, doing your first degree in South Africa? Oh, well, I... Uh, the, 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 uh, I, I really enjoyed my time in England. I absolutely enjoyed visiting University of Cambridge uh, and Oxford. They made us uh, visit uh, those two institutions. And I, I enjoyed uh, uh, you know, uh, being at Imperial College next to uh, the Science Museum. So uh, uh, when I came back from England, uh, my mind was more or less set about uh, wanting to study overseas. Uh, uh, the options uh, at that point that were available to study overseas was England, um, Canada, or United States. You know. uh, then I went and watched um, a show called L.A. Law. I don't know whether you still remember that. <laughs> Very well. Uh, and, uh, and that inspired I, you. And, uh, and the accent was just uh, something that I never really... Uh, had never actually uh, encountered, you know. Uh, uh, we take it for granted that, you know, if you were growing up in the in the 80s, you know, uh, you, 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 you did not see the world as much as people today do. You know, if you were growing up in Venda, uh, you know, there was not even in television. Certainly we did not have television in our home. So, so it was actually quite, uh, uh, quite spectacular. And the Americans... Uh, who were at uh, attending the science forum? I would say they were. Now I would say they are showmen because I I, I spent time in America. I, I, it's a very extravagant uh, culture, you know. Uh, it was impressive when you are sitting. Uh, 
you're coming from South Africa, you see these young people, they are very loud and they, uh, uh, they, they, they actually speak their minds, you know. So that is really the reason uh, that made me choose to go to North America. And uh, obviously when I arrived in Ohio, it was, uh, it was actually uh, a bit of a shock. Uh, there were only three South Africans uh, at the university. One of them was uh, quite coincidentally um, from my high school in Venda. Uh, That's a amazing. A, a gentleman called Joseph Makari. He's one. There is a casino in 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 Pulukwane. He is one of the owners of, of, of hmm. that casino. Uh, uh, and then there was um, um, uh, uh, Inos Banda, uh, who later became the CEO of Escom Enterprise. Uh, so it was, uh, it was, uh, uh, and lots of Asians, uh, because it was a, a period in which uh, the Asian tigers were sending lots of students to mm -hmm. study in North America. So lots of, uh, of, of students from, from, from Malaysia. Uh, I had many friends. Uh, one of my best friends was, was actually from Tokyo. Uh, uh, so it was uh, it was it was a life uh, uh, altering experience. And the second thing that I really would like to put forward, when I transferred from UCT, I understood how the engineering curriculum, a mechanical engineering curriculum at UCT looks like. And then I arrived in North America, and things were not quite the same as. Uh, as uh, uh, what uh, what I saw in the curriculum at UCT, of course you will have uh, you will have uh, uh, common common courses such as um, uh, calculus. Uh, here in South Africa, we call it mathematics, but it's, it's basically the same. Uh, the big difference was that uh, I was all of a sudden expected to take uh, twelve semesters of human and social sciences as part of my curriculum. Uh, that was a big. Uh, difference, uh, uh, you know. Uh, and now I understand the value of uh, of studying psychology. You know, when I, now I when, now when we talk about reinforcement learning in in artificial intelligence, I always say that the first time I heard about reinforcement learning was actually in a psychology class. You know, uh, so my understanding of reinforcement learning actually starts with uh, with uh, the 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 Biological sciences, you know, Pavlov and his dogs, and how how he came up with the theory of motivation, and ultimately you motivate people uh, through the concept of uh, reward and, uh, and 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 punishment. So so that was uh, that was actually quite uh, something that I absolutely enjoyed. Because in fact, uh, quite interesting that um, Karen, my co-presenter did her degree in um, um, Cape Town, also at UCT, and she did philosophy, and she's gone into artificial intelligence. And I don't know, Karen, if you want to uh, talk about your transition from humanities into AI. Yes. Uh, hi. Firstly, hi, Prof. It's like it's really cool to have you on this uh, on this podcast. Um, I've seen a couple of your talks. It's always really, really cool. Uh, so this is this is super dope. I'm excited. Um, so yeah, as as Prof. Dolatsky said, um, yeah, I did my background in humanities at UCT, um, specifically philosophy and economics, and then 
I was sort of doing an internship at this fintech and you got to rotate around the different departments and there was this department called data science and I was like, wow, I have no clue what these guys do, but they all seem really cool, so let me give it a shot. And I felt like in the first like week and a half, I was like, oh my goodness, this is basically philosophy, except like you don't just have to think in abstraction, you can actually like have a meaningful kind of output uh, in the form of code or whatever. And I was like, that's super, super cool. Um, and then, yeah, I kind of uh, got interested in credit risk as well. And I think, um, you know, AI really thrives in, in optimizing sort of problem statements. And I think credit risk has a lot of that. So it was pretty easy to marry the two kind of disciplines. But uh, one thing that I got more and more interested in is like, you know, credit is something that I think holds a lot of weight in South Africa as probably in most countries. Um, but there's such a kind of tenuous relationship with it. And it means that you have to be really careful um, about the models that you design, even if they're super sophisticated and, and algorithmically enticing, um, there's an ethical impact to that. And I think that that as well kind of really helped me sort of combine the two disciplines of like, you know, AI and, and philosophy, which has more, probably more overlaps than than we think. Um, so yeah, hearing you talk about kind of your own journey um, with a really technical degree and then also like social sciences is brilliant and that's m super exciting. And we will um, talk slightly more a bit later about this relationship between between AI and humanities and the things uh, Chalitzi has done. Um, to um, kind of just tie up your 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 very early uh, career to let's see you um, spend some time in the uh, in, in a top university in the US and unfortunately a lot of South Africans who go that way tend not to come back so we we tend to find our sort of brightest and best people or some of them who uh, go to the US or go to Europe or go um, abroad and study and they're enticed to stay in uh, the country they study in. It's, it's quite interesting that you came back and you came back to do your master's. Uh, could you just uh, talk about what motivated you to come back rather than to carry on your academic career in uh, the US or elsewhere? But yeah, good. No, no, uh, so yeah, uh, um, it was not as straightforward as, uh, as that. Uh, I must confess, uh, uh, there were there were pull factors. Uh, 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 I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, uh, when will there be the right time to to come to South Africa. Uh, I went and spent a little bit of time in 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 Canada, uh, Edmonton. It was not very exciting, uh, so I dismissed that uh, uh, right away. And then uh, when I was in London. Uh, uh, I, I have mixed feelings about, uh, about London. Uh, when I was staying in London, it was, um, it was very expensive. Uh, I suppose Imperial College is not, uh, it's probably not uh, the right place to be from a cost uh, uh, benefit uh, perspective. Uh, it is in zone one, very, very expensive part of, uh, of, of London which basically means you live very far from, 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 from where you work. I was living in Battersea. Uh, there was no underground. Uh, I could use a bus, but uh, a bus used to take almost an hour. Uh, 
I could walk in just a little bit less than an hour. So, uh, uh, so, uh, so there was uh, that was that was one of the the issues that uh, that I considered before I I came back. And secondly, uh, I always wanted to come back and uh, and contribute to to education in South Africa. Uh, and I, I I did not want to go and and work for a company. Uh, the fact that I went to South African breweries is actually quite coincidental. I was supposed to. Uh, have landed at the University of Pretoria, uh, and in the last minute, uh, uh, I sort of felt that maybe I should just go and see how uh, the so-called real world uh, looks like. Uh, uh, and 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 uh, basically, uh, I realized that in South Africa, the, there was a great deal to be done. Uh, and ultimately, when I came to Vets uh, University, I really absolutely enjoyed myself working there, the students that I have worked with uh, have inspired me quite a great deal. It's um, kind of important as well, and I, I'm, I'm trying to, to sort of unpick a bit about uh, what influences people and influenced you to make decisions. So uh, through the time that you were growing up and when you returned to South Africa, uh, uh, politics were a very important factor in our country and, and uh, strangely at that time although politics was so important many scientists and engineers that I've met uh, and that I'm, I kind of met then didn't seem to have much interest in political and social issues but you were clearly not one of those you were inspired and you kind of looked at the political and social and in terms of who influenced you, who, who were your influences to kind of make you unlike other engineers and scientists? Was it uh, the fact that you did humanities courses in the States or were there other forces in your life that made you uh, become a sort of political and social animal and not just an engineer and scientist? I, I, I think it's a combination of, uh, of a number of things. Uh, uh, firstly, I, I was genuinely quite curious. I really was genuinely quite curious. Uh, and I went and took, uh, and now when I think about it, uh, uh, I was quite ambitious in the sort of courses that I took. Uh, I took all my summer uh, uh, classes. Uh, it's only one summer that I, 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 I did not take any classes. So I ended up having, uh, I was supposed to graduate with, with 131 credits. And I think I ended up graduating with one, 161 credits. And some of the courses that I took, uh, for example, I took, um, I thought I took two acting classes. When I went to my transcript, I realized that I actually took three acting classes. Uh, I took uh, two psychology classes. Um, I took uh, a, a class, uh, two history classes, uh, history of South Africa and uh, and uh, history and philosophy of science. Quite coincidentally, I am, I am reading a book that I read as, a, as an undergraduate student right now, uh, um, you know, The Structure of, uh, of Scientific Revolution by Thomas Kuhn. There was a prescribed book there. Uh, and I ended up taking um, uh, economics as, as my minor. I took uh, seven economic classes uh, and I think the diversity of, of courses that I took 
would have contributed to my my liking of, of complex problems. And, and many of the complex problems, I see them in, in human and social sciences. Because uh, 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 precision is not quite there. You know, uh, you, don't, you don't measure uh, behavior. You know, it's not as easy to measure behavior as compared to, uh, to measuring uh, the vibration of a, of a structure, for example. So, uh, so that uh, that did actually influence me, and then uh, also the people around me actually uh, uh, influenced me. Uh, for example, my love for history was uh, was was because uh, 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 you know one one of my neighbors used to ask me to walk with him, and he's going to be uh, explaining to me uh, uh, about uh, about history. Not too long ago, uh, I hosted um, uh, a gentleman called Dr. Mukwebo uh, here at the University of Johannesburg. And I was, uh, I was reminding him that uh, when I was still a young man, I must have been uh, 12, 13, he's, he's, he's older than me, that uh, he read uh, uh, Julius Caesar uh, for me and my friend uh, over, I think, five sessions, you know, it was done on Sunday, so I'll go on Sunday and we'll, we'll read part and then we'll go and, and complete it. And I think the combination of, uh, of what happened in the classroom and what happened in the, outside the classroom actually motivated me to be interested in, in the world in its totality. I think that's a very critical thing. And when we speak later about passing on the baton, I can, I can see that there are things there that that are the kind of inspirations young people should should hear in terms of, of broadening their knowledge and broadening their worldview. Um, to, to, to talk a bit about uh, your race, so in this metaphor of the relay race, we've spoken about um, receiving the baton, and then you ran your race, and so you've got your baton in your hand and you're racing off on life's journey, and you uh, quickly are making this bet on your own. Uh, can you talk a bit about your formative research years, the kind of things you did for your master's and PhD? What research were you doing when you were doing your master's and PhD? Uh, so uh, when I was doing my master's, uh, I did my master's in finite element uh, uh, modeling. Model, model. So finite element uh, is a, a numerical technique uh, that is used to model uh, things as complex as uh, as um, a structure of a, of, of a building, uh, movement of, 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 of gas, and you can even uh, use it to uh, to numerically solve, uh, uh, you know, the Navier-Stokes equation uh, or even the black scores equations uh, uh, in in finance, you know. So uh, my task there was to, uh, to reconcile what the mathematical model was predicting with what the measurements were seeing. So you, on one hand, you have measurements. On the other hand, you have prediction from a mathematical uh, computer software model. And the task is really to uh, to bring the model because you can't move the data. The data is the reality. The only thing you can move there 
is uh, the model. How do you move the model closer to the reality to, to make it more correct or more, more true? I wouldn't want to use uh, loaded words like truth um, in this regard, you know, because uh, these, are, these are ultimately uh, approximations. And then, uh, uh, obviously, naturally, it takes you to the world of optimization uh, because uh, uh, the, 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 the way you tackle this problem, uh, you make, you make uh, uh, the, the things you are not sure about, the variables you are not sure about, uh, 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 you know, uh, subjects to an optimization process. Uh, and the objective of that optimization process is to bring your mathematical model to your experimental data. And then when I went to do uh, a PhD, uh, now artificial intelligence, uh, quite coincidentally, is also about that. You have a mathematical model on one, on, 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 on one hand, and you have your observation, which is your data. And what you want to do is to make your mathematical model um, uh, 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 you know, uh, reflect the distribution of your data as much as possible. So again, that is why when you do uh, artificial intelligence, just like when I was doing uh, uh, model updating in finite element uh, analysis, um, uh, uh, the common thread there is some optimization process. In fact, we use the same uh, optimization process, whether it is gradient descent, whether it's conjugate gradient method, all these things are actually quite common. The only difference there is that uh, uh, in finite element model, you can claim that the models are physically realistic because you use Newton's laws of motion uh, to actually derive the mathematical model. Whereas uh, in a, a deep learning uh, architecture, it is a statistical model uh, that is not derived from any form of reality, uh, it works. You can be able to predict the, the data. So this is how I actually ended up uh, uh, in AI. Uh, and then when I came to do a, a postdoc at Imperial College, uh, we were working on how do we make software agents intelligent and adaptive. Um, uh, at that point, uh, they did not want us to use the word software agents. Uh, I met uh, Philippe, uh, my, my postdoctoral supervisor, and I was reminding him that uh, uh, the European Union used to be very angry if we used the word agent. Uh, and the reason why they did not want the, to use the word agent was because the Americans were using the word agent and they invented their own word called info habitat. <laughs> uh, you know, you can see it was not a psychologist who came up with the word uh, infohabited. It was, it's even difficult to, uh, to pronounce it. Uh, and if something is difficult to pronounce it, then it's not going to be used. You know? uh, I, I went and searched for the word infohabitant uh, on, on the internet, and I can see my writings. It looks like it never, it never uh, 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 got any legs. It never went anywhere. So that is really my research career. Uh, yeah. So that is how I came to to the field of artificial intelligence. And in fact, uh, very interestingly, my um, uh, um, time at Imperial College, which sort of overlapped with you being there as this young post-matriculant, 
uh, visiting London for the first time, and it was towards the end of my time in in uh, the UK. But um, the uh, program I was working on at Imperial was called the Probe Group, and we were looking at applying optimal control theory to um, to uh, the world of macroeconomic policy formulation. And we used these big macroeconomic models. And the interesting thing about those models is that they couldn't model human behavior because humans obviously are, are kind of watching the policies and changing their behavior to beat the control. So the control system is always fighting the model. And it, it, it was a very interesting case. And we looked at uh, some of the uh, game theory ideas in terms of uh, um, not just applying um, control theory, but, but looking at competitive games. So there, there were some, some, some obvious overlaps there. Um, um, Karen, what would uh, you, in uh, terms of hearing Chalitzi's uh, research background and the things he's been um, talking about and looking at your career as it now formulates, what would you uh, kind of think about the comparisons and, and have you got anything to say? Yes, yeah, so thank you. Um, I've kind of just had my like jaw on the floor just listening to to sort of the research and the things that you were interested in, and I guess it's it's interesting to me that uh, you know you did you did your masters in um, sort of the, the finite uh, element modeling and stuff, which is a really really like deeply technical kind of technique in in structural mechanics or whatever, and and yet you had like this very clear curiosity. Um, towards you know the social side of things and so I'm wondering kind of um, especially now that I think the AI community is, is trying to be more intentional about ethics and the, the stuff that gets built and, and, and scaled um, I'm kind of wondering a little bit like what your social side of, of AI was like while you were doing this research uh, Absolutely I mean I think one of the things that I really uh, enjoyed uh, working in AI was, uh, 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 was uh, maybe just before I talk about that, one of the principles that I adopted earlier on uh, was the principle of open-mindedness. That uh, when a student comes and they say they want to work in this uh, area, uh, you know, uh, uh, I should be open-minded about it, you know, uh, as, long as, uh, uh, as long as it, it has uh, academic merit. So as a result, uh, and I have supervised, uh, I was actually just counting, I've supervised uh, 30 PhDs and 50 master's students uh, to completion, which is actually quite uh, a huge number, you know. Uh, yeah, that is very impressive. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 and, and many of it uh, uh, actually at Vance University. And, uh, and the span of, uh, of, of, of the work I mean, uh, economics is quite natural because uh, I took seven economic classes when I was an undergraduate. So, so I, you know, I, I think I, I know uh, enough, certainly uh, b b enough basic uh, economics uh, uh, to be able to, uh, to work quite attentively on. So I've spent a lot of time working in economics. Uh, two years back, uh, I wrote a book, uh, I co-wrote it with um, my student, uh, 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 
uh, who was my master student at VET. I'm not too sure whether Bill, you still remember a gentleman called uh, Evan uh, Hewitt. Uh, yes, very, very well. Uh, he did the master's uh, uh, with me at VET uh, uh, on, on teaching a computer to learn how to bluff. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you have to be open-minded to, uh, to work on a topic like that. And then when I moved to University of uh, Johannesburg, uh, he followed to come and do a PhD, uh, which he completed it in portfolio theory, you know, uh, which is very more finance. Markowitz won a Nobel Prize for that. Uh, and last year, uh, um, not last year, about um, uh, four years ago, uh, we were worried about the whole discipline of economics, that uh, uh, economics as we study it at school, uh, is constructed under the assumption that uh, uh, the, the agent for decision-making is a human being. Uh, whereas what is actually happening is that uh, the agent is no longer a human being. It's at best a combination of a human being and a machine. And we're saying, what does this thing actually do to the whole field of economics. And we took uh, about 15 subjects, many of them win, that, that won a Nobel Prize. For example, demand and supply. Uh, what happens to, the, to, to that demand and supply curve that we are taught when we, we get into economics? And the answer is very simple. Uh, um, you know, uh, it, is, it is being disaggregated uh, uh, because when you go to pick and pay, you are subjected to a price that was arrived from aggregate demand and aggregate supply. You know, whereas if you go to an Amazon platform, you know, you are subjected to your own, maybe aggregate uh, supply, but certainly the demand is your own individual demand curve. And that is why for the same product, people pay different prices. So you have the individualization of... Uh, of, of the demand curve and ultimately of, 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 of price. You know, and then you can go on to uh, mechanism design, you can go on to um, rationality and so on and so forth. And then um, the other area that I got into, I was introduced to, uh, to this area by Monica Lagaccio. Uh, she is a, a, a political scientist from Lecce in, in, in Italy. Uh, 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 and she said, you know, can we, can we use AI to be able to make interstate uh, um, conflict predictions? And, and we did this, you know, and we wrote a book, uh, uh, which uh, uh, we, we still don't know why, but the Chinese military uh, uh, academy actually uh, translated it into Mandarin. Uh, I often wonder how they reformulate uh, uh, words in the manuscript about democracy. Uh, it will be very interesting to know how uh, how, how they reformulate it uh, so that uh, the Chinese, the people in China are able to understand. Uh, as you know, the politi their political system is quite different. Uh, and then, so uh, so so basically, uh, the areas which I uh, I really have worked on are areas that I've been passionate about. So uh, I became passionate about. Uh, big issues of, of conflict. Uh, I spent a lot of time working with um, uh, David Rubin, uh, 
who introduced me to biomedical engineering. So, uh, so I would have spent a lot of time uh, uh, applying um, AI to designing artificial learnings uh, or in prediction of, uh, of, 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 of um, pulmonary embolism and so on and so forth. So it was, uh, it was also uh, open-mindedness when students come, open-mindedness uh, uh, in collaborating with people you wouldn't traditionally collaborate with because uh, they are almost from a, a, a separate discipline than, than yours. Uh, and I think my, my very multidisciplinary undergraduate uh, uh, training had a huge uh, contribution towards uh, that mindset. So that's uh, really fascinating and that leads us to, to the next thing that I wanted to discuss. And it's really uh, kind of uh, pretty nearly bringing us up to where you are now. And um, we, uh, you are uh, currently the uh, Deputy Chair of the Presidential Commission on, on the Fourth Industrial uh, Revolution. And um, in uh, the past couple of years, you've, you've become best known for your engagement around the conversations around 4IR. And um, you, a couple of months ago, published the, uh, or some of the findings uh, that the Commission has come up with. And uh, for those of you that, ha for uh, those of the listeners that haven't uh, really heard what the Commission is proposing, uh, could you just maybe speak about uh, some of the things that you are recommending to the president in terms of uh, preparing for the fourth industrial revolution? No, no, thanks. I think this uh, the issue of the fourth industrial revolution is obviously something that I've become very interested in uh, over the last uh, uh, few years. Uh, and of course, artificial intelligence is at the heart of, uh, of the fourth industrial revolution. So we as the commission, when we came together uh, to come up with recommendations, I was actually quite, uh, 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 quite uh, 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 I had the intention that uh, uh, we shouldn't give uh, a, a thousand recommendations. You know, there has to be uh, maybe five, or, or, or originally I wanted it to be five. Ultimately, it became eight core recommendations. Of course, there are many recommendations under each recommendation and there are other recommendations that wouldn't necessarily fit into one recommendation. But uh, the first recommendation was about uh, 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 investing in human capacity uh, in the areas of the fourth industrial revolution. And for me, uh, instead of uh, going to, uh, to, to point at a particular uh, a subject that uh, uh, people need to study. Uh, some people say uh, you need to recommend that uh, our schooling must uh, teach people how to code. We, we, I wanted to focus on the core skills that you would need in order to be able to master uh, uh, these technologies uh, and the developments around the fourth industrial revolution. Computational thinking, for example, you know, ability to think logically. Especially given the fact that uh, in, in the schooling system, we do not have a single subject that you can call logic. 
you know, uh, that teaches you to think logically directly. Of course, it comes uh, indirectly through the study of mathematics uh, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, multidisciplinarity is actually very, very important in higher education for our people to be able to, to master uh, uh, the fourth industrial revolution. Because, for example, if somebody is going to, to work on an algorithm that is going to translate um, a spoken word from one language to another, it goes without saying that such a person must understand how to code. But at the same time, such person must also be able to understand linguistics. And in South Africa, you will be hard-pressed to find somebody who is studying computer science and, and linguistics. But those two things are becoming much, much closer. You know, the, 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 the 4IR, the artificial intelligence, these are multidisciplinary subjects. So the skills must also reflect that. So the first recommendation is around human capacity development. The second recommendation is about National Artificial Intelligence Institute that focuses on application of AI in all areas of our economy and our society. And then the third recommendation is around creating a platform for advanced manufacturing through the adoption of the technologies of the fourth industrial revolution, whether it is 3D printing, uh, whether it is uh, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, how do we bring those things into our manufacturing domain to increase uh, productivity of our, of our uh, industrial base? Then the fourth recommendation is around data. And there we say avail and secure data in order to uh, promote uh, the commerce of, uh, of, 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 of the fourth industrial revolution. So what we are saying here is that data must be available whenever it is possible. It should be open and available so that a small uh, enterprise uh, in AI can be able to go into our medical database, which is obviously, it has to be secure in the sense that uh, it does not reveal people's identity. Uh, and they can be able to create uh, an app that will be able to get an image of an X-ray and be able to, uh, uh, to, to diagnose uh, uh, you know, whether somebody has a pulmonary embolism or not. Uh, for the doctor to be able to, uh, you know, to, to, to have a much more uh, reliable uh, device doing that, you know. And then the fifth recommendation is around uh, incentivizing the adoption of these technologies. Uh, I think uh, one of the American economists, uh, I can't remember, I think it is Robert Schiller, who, who was once asked, to, uh, could you explain the whole of economics in one word? And his answer was incentives. Because if you, if you have incentives, you'll have demand and supply. Uh, and you'll have almost every important aspect of, of, of economics. So even here, we're saying that these technologies uh, will not be adopted uh, uh, as if effectively as we would like them to be adopted. Uh, uh, and, and, and what we ought to do is to incentivize. Uh, is, is it uh, tax? Uh, incentives? Is it uh, 
access to uh, research support, uh, access to grants through the Technology Innovation Agency, whatever the incentives are, but it is clear that we need to incentivize people to adopt these technologies. Then the sixth recommendation is around investing in 4IR infrastructure. One of the things that we need to do right away is the issue of spectrum. You know, uh, it should be competitive. Uh, and then the seventh recommendation is around uh, amending uh, legislation so that it is in line with our with the development in the digital economy. One one example, ICASA. When we had a telegram, there was a regulator of a telegram. When the telegram disappeared, that regulator disappeared. Then we have ICASA that was regulating broadcasting and uh, and so on and so forth. You know. That era is coming to an end. Uh, the things that we would normally get through broadcasting now, uh, we are now getting it through the digital platform, which is not regulated, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, so ICASA must actually come to the digital age. Uh, we need to uh, to start thinking, you know, I was, I was looking at, uh, I think it's Estonia. Uh, they now have what is called digital residency. Now you get residency in order to be able to work and live in a particular area. But people uh, do not necessarily uh, 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 live in places where they work. You know, uh, a lot of work uh, uh, in Silicon Valley is being done in India. You know, uh, uh, so in many ways, or is, it is outsourcing. But the other way of doing it is, is, is to give such people digital uh, residency so that they are able to work um, through the cloud, obviously, uh, in Silicon Valley. And then the last, the last recommendation is around implementation. And on implementation, the role of non-state actors cannot be emphasized enough. Because in, in South Africa, like in many other parts of the world, there is more knowledge about the technologies of the fourth industrial revolution in private hands than in public hands. So it goes without saying that if you expect the public sector to be able to carry any of these recommendations, it is going to fail. It will only succeed if the role of private actors is actually uh, elevated. In fact, it is elevated higher than the role of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the public sector. My views is that the public sector must set the scene, must create the environment, and then the private sector must do the work. Uh, thank you. That's, I mean, it's an amazing uh, a collection of coherent and integrated proposals, and they all hang together. Um, I have to ask, and it's um, kind of really uh, bringing us right up to today. So uh, does the experience of the COVID pandemic, and people are, are um, saying that uh, due to the pandemic, digital transformation has been accelerated, and a lot of the intentions or the expectations around 4RR are now being um, kind of activated through COVID. But um, in, in terms of, 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 of what we're seeing around COVID, would you say any of the 
recommendations of the um, Commission, which which reported prior to the pandemic, would change? Has there been any uh, new thinking around uh, where we should be going in the post-COVID world? No, absolutely. I think um, uh, the post-COVID world is going to uh, to be very digital. And uh, naturally, if it is going to be digital, a recommendation, our recommendation around data is going to become very, very important. Um, uh, one of the things that we talk about in the recommendation around data, we talk about uh, uh, data storage and the need to have uh, we, we, we put it up front that don't build data centers, go and buy clouds, you know, uh, uh, cloud computing, you know, uh, uh, another issue, you know, um, edge computing, you know, uh, 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 very, very important, given the fact that uh, here at University of Johannesburg, we are using um, uh, a system called Blackboard. And that system is not uh, is is from the cloud. It's operating from the cloud, you know, uh, and it will actually be very. It, it it will it will it will make our work much more efficient if it was uh, if it was located closer to us. You know, uh, edge computing becomes very very important. So the issue around uh, data talks um, uh, is at the core of the post-COVID world. How do you manage data? The issue around the 4IR infrastructure is also another issue that is at the core of, of the post-COVID world because it talks of issues of connectivity. It talks of issues of the speed of connectivity. It talks of, uh, of, 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 of issues of uh, devices of connectivity. So very, very important. You know. um, the issue of... Um, of legislation, flexible legislation becomes very, very important. One of the things that happened during COVID that people uh, do not know is that uh, there was uh, an emergency spectrum allocation to allow our telecommunication companies to be able to support the sudden surge in the utilization of, uh, of data. You know? Very, very important. So uh, the issue of, of flexible regime to be able to meet the needs depending on, on, on what it is is very, very important. Um, um, the issue of AI being at the center of the solutions, uh, uh, I mean, uh, obviously um, what I read from China is uh, it takes it to another level whereby they are using uh, AI-enabled drones uh, to monitor movements of people, and uh, some of those drones, uh, they talk to uh, to people if they are not uh, wearing their masks. You know, uh, the issue of uh, using home robots to clean, uh, uh, to maximize uh, um, social distancing. If you remove the movement of people up and down, unnecessary movement of people up and down. Um, uh, then, then you're going to deal with issues of COVID. So I'm quite confident that uh, 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 these recommendations that we have put are almost in line and they address the demands of the post-COVID world. 
That's fantastic. And, uh, you know, I think that you've touched on something that really uh, speaks a lot to 4 And I know Karen is very um, interested, and she mentioned a bit about it, but um, the, the question of um, the link between um, sort of ethics and control and state monitoring and um, um, moving into this AI robot controlled world. Um, Karen, would you like to talk a bit about uh, sort of the kind of ethics around AI in this COVID world where, where monitoring is, is being done and things like that? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so this is honestly a, a topic I could go on for hours and hours about. Um, but yeah, I guess, you know, recently and, and not ne necessarily specific to, to COVID, but I think it's catalyzed a lot of things. Um, it's become very clear that, you know, even when we kind of privatize information or, or have private companies taking over a certain kind of social problems, um, there's a bit of a, I guess, a disconnect uh, in terms of, of who is solving for these problems uh, and the fact that the who's are often not part of the problems themselves. So it can become a somewhat sort of superficial um, problem solving exercise. And, you know, you've, you've obviously spoken about this earlier uh, around kind of the need for that kind of interdisciplinary thing. Um, and so I'm curious to understand kind of like, you know, more pragmatically outside of, you know, hiring people who are linguists and, and upskilling them in Python or, or whatever. Um, what do you think South Africa uh, needs to do in terms of like making AI more ethical uh, and not just, you know, scalable? No, I mean, um, just coincidentally, I am in, um, I am, uh, in a team of the World Health Organization. Uh, that is developing uh, uh, ethical guidelines for the applications of AI in, in, in medicine. Uh, the problem with that, 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 that whole issue of ethics of AI uh, is, is the complexity of the problem. Because, for example, let us just uh, take a, an instance whereby an AI algorithm is being used in hospital. Uh, uh, the value chain of that whole process, it starts with the collection of data and the ethics of the collection of data, you know. Then that data has to be used to train an, uh, an algorithm. Uh, there has to be some governance around that. And there's no standardization. It's not like we have not reached a point uh, like uh, uh, in a country where they will tell you that if you want to design a bridge, these are. Uh, the, the guidelines that you need to follow, and if you don't follow them, uh, then you are out. Uh, you are outside the the ethical uh, guidelines because uh, you will be putting people in danger. We have not reached that point, uh, and and then uh, at the at the end you have the user, uh, in, and in this instance is a doctor. You know, so when something uh, something goes wrong, you don't really know uh, where the source of the problem. It's not clear where the source of the problem is. And the identification of the source of problem uh, in many ways is an inverse problem, which basically means it is not unique. Uh, it has multiple solutions, so you will not know which solution is which. Uh, just a few weeks back, I think two weeks back, I wrote an article on Sunday Times about the use of AI 
to deal with the issue of corruption. And one of my academics, uh, uh, Professor, uh, uh, Professor Jane Duncan, responded in, 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 in uh, last Sunday to my article, basically saying that uh, you know, getting uh, AI uh, to become a judge in a court of law is a step too far because AI can be biased, you know. And then, uh, uh, and what we don't understand, what we, what we need to, 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 to start uh, taking into account is that um, the human judges are actually um, uh, also biased. I read a study, I think it was in Israel, where they were saying that uh, judges are much harsher uh, after lunch than before lunch. And the explanation is probably because they are hungry or they are in a rush to go and, mm -hmm. and, and, and eat and so on and so forth. You know. So, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, the ethics of AI are similar, maybe a little bit more complicated uh, uh, than the ethics of human beings. The good thing is that I think the ethics of AI is easier to fix than ethics of human beings. We know that uh, uh, algorithms discriminate uh, because their data is not representative enough. And we can be able to make sure that uh, before we deploy an AI system, it has to be able to meet the representativity uh, criteria. You know? but, so you can fix it. But if it was a human being, you wouldn't be able to fix it. So, uh, 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 and then lastly, we need to invest in the skills of people who study the ethics of AI. It's not clear, uh, 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 you know, if you look at the grants uh, that are going to AI, and you look at uh, the proportion of, of grants that go to the ethical part of AI, as compared to the grants that go to the commercial aspect of AI. You can't even compare the two. And secondly, we need to assemble the people. They are obviously going to have to be multidisciplinary. Uh, ideally, you want somebody who understands ethics in its traditional form, but also at the same time understands technology. And that does not come easy. What, what it means, it means as educators, we need to start creating new types of, 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 of areas of specialization. Here at the University of Johannesburg, um, um, I know uh, Barry, uh, your son studied uh, um, a course called PPE, Politics, Philosophy and Economics. And uh, uh, when I went to, I was speaking at uh, the Cambridge, uh, Oxford Union last year on, on the ethics of AI, quite coincidentally. And it, it, it got to my mind that PPE is an excellent qualification. But now maybe you need a PET, politics, economics, and technology. Technology now is so important in our lives that it has to be studied alongside philosophy and economics.
you know, and, and once we start uh, shifting towards infusing technology into whether it is PPE, whether it is law, uh, then we shall actually be able to, uh, to, to create, to, to train enough people to be able to go and, and handle issues of, 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 of ethics within the complexity of, of technology and its evolution. That's, um, uh, that's really great. I mean, that's a great perception. Um, I just want, we are coming to the end and there are a few uh, short questions that I have before we tie up. And one is just to, to, to talk about an African perspective. Um, a digital transformation in, is important in South Africa as it is across Africa. And uh, what do you see as uh, South Africa's role or place within the, the broader African perspective? Well, there, there, there are a number of, uh, of roles that Africa uh, uh, can play. Uh, when uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa uh, took over as, uh, as uh, the chairman of the African Union, one of his flagship uh, projects was the establishment of uh, the Africa AI Forum, where Africans are going to come uh, together uh, within a single uh, platform or, or multiple platforms and start talking about AI and how we can shape it in order uh, 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 to work uh, for, uh, for Africa, its people, and its economies. Very, very important. Uh, South Africa is the most industrialized um, country in the continent, and therefore, you can't really uh, uh, talk about uh, matters of technology without actually um, getting South Africa into the equation. Other countries are making quite um, uh, huge, huge, uh, uh, huge uh, progress. I spend quite a great deal of time in Rwanda, very, very uh, uh, um, uh, impressed about that. I am a chairman of the, the, the Institute of uh, um, Internet of Things at the University of, uh, of Rwanda. Uh, um, I think it is a World Bank, uh, it is a World Bank uh, Institute that deals with uh, Internet of Things and how we can be able to exploit it. So we need to build uh, institutes that will, that, that, that will put us uh, at the core of the digital transformation. Whether it is the National AI Institute or the Continental one should also come. Uh, we need to train people to be able to understand these technologies. Again, uh, education on, 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 on technology is very important across the board. I spend quite a great deal of time I'm a columnist uh, in, in, in Forbes Africa, uh, talking about technology and what it is doing to Africa. We need to understand uh, how it is evolving. For example, uh, if you go to Ghana now, you have lots of people uh, who are doing AI. Uh, many of them coming from the West uh, because uh, Google has a, a $1 billion uh, AI lab in Ghana, you know, uh, uh, we need to see 
what they are doing, how we can collaborate and how we can diffuse what they are doing uh, to the rest of the African continent. Microsoft is, is investing a similar platform in, 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 uh, in, in, in Nairobi. You know? uh, so we need to understand what is going on and how we can be able to, uh, to diffuse it to the rest of, of, of the African continent. Uh, we need to start uh, uh, you know, engaging movement of people. Uh, because AI is about solving real-world problems. And we are not going to solve real-world problems unless we understand the African continent. One of the things that we have done here at the University of Johannesburg, we introduced something called Africa by Bus. Obviously, it stopped because of, uh, of, uh, of COVID. You know? and, and what we, uh, uh, in, f in fact, uh, uh, it started as Africa by Bus and it became Innovation by Bus. We took our students to Mozambique, we took our students to Zambia by bus, we took them to uh, Namibia, we took them to uh, Botswana, and, uh, and this year we're going to take them to Kigali and on the way to Kampala. Uh, and, and, and the idea is that there are lots of problems that are looking for solutions, for technological solutions. You need to understand these problems, and you can only understand them if you if you see things, you experience them, you interact with people, and then we can be able to, uh, to, 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 to come up with solutions that we can scale and we can commercialize and we can be able to uh, contribute to our, to our economies. Thank you. That's a wonderful answer and it really gives a, a grand view of where your journey has taken you and your, 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 your eminent position on the African continent in uh, the field of, well, the broad field of AI and then in your specializations. So um, as we come to the, to the last bit of the podcast, and this is uh, just um, to, to kind of note that, and I'm certainly not um, saying that your race is done because you still have a lot of energy in you, I know that, uh, but I'm um, supposing that I were to ask you to think about Karen and her generation here in South Africa, uh, her generation across Africa, or her generation in the world. And if you were um, looking across the table at them and saying, uh, here is my advice to you, here's what I hand over, here is the baton that I want to put in your hands, uh, what would those, would a few pointers, a few words of advice you would give to the next generation? So I would say, uh, Karen, uh, be involved. Uh, be involved in, 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 the, in, in the AI community, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. I, yes, I, know, yeah. I know many people are quite uh, active in the uh, you know, deep learning in Dava. Uh, mm, that is yeah, educating. My favorite. Uh, that is educating uh, uh, the people in the African continent. Uh, uh, excellent uh, initiative. Uh, uh, by the way, Barry, I don't know whether you know that uh, the two people who came up with the idea of deep learning in Dawa were master students at VETS, uh, Shakir yes. Muhammad, uh, who went and did a PhD at uh, Cambridge. And uh, yes, one of our ex students, that yeah, we know and Vukosi uh, Malibate, yes, uh, who is not UP, did, yeah, who, who did the masters with me and went to that gas to do a PhD in AI. Yes. Uh, so, be involved, very, very important. 
And secondly, be open-minded. You know, uh, uh, the people who are actually going to come up with uh, the solutions to many of the pressing problems uh, in AI, in digitization, will be people who are coming from outside. It won't be the insiders who are almost conditioned to a paradigm. Uh, I can speak about the paradigm now that I'm just, uh, I just freshly read Thomas Kuhn. Uh, uh, it's people who are going to, uh, to ask uh, the difficult questions from, a, from a, a different perspective than the convention. Uh, because uh, what you see uh, was built by the current uh, paradigm. And uh, maybe the, 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 the solutions to our problems are going to require another paradigm. And then the third thing is uh, that I, uh, I, I would, uh, I would uh, advise uh, Karen is, uh, is reading. Don't forget to read, you know. Uh, I read uh, uh, at least three books uh, per month. Uh, okay, I'm, I, I cheat a little bit because I, I listen to it while I'm walking in the morning. I, I do a one, one and a half hour <laughs> walk every morning. <laughs> so I'm, I'm listening to a book, you know. Uh, um, uh, read and read widely. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's things that you would, you, you would not that would not have a direct connection to your work, that might actually have the answers to, your, uh, to, 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 to the problems that you, that you face in your, in your work, in your career, uh, and in your dreams. So thank you very much. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Chilotsi, for those pearls of wisdom. And uh, you know, if I just have to look at your life and look at what you've done, and um, it's, it's been clear to me from the day I met you that you're a multidimensional human being, that you uh, what we used to call a polymath. I don't know if they still use that wonderful word, but a person who really looks at the world from every angle. And uh, you told me recently that you did, act, did acting classes. You mentioned it again. And it really fits, you know. You, you um, kind of really step out of your 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 box and do other things and you carry on doing that so thank you so much for being part of this conversation um and also thanks for joining us on the podcast and giving of your time and um please keep doing what you do and and we'll keep watching what you do and hopefully have you back to tell us more exciting things you that you've been doing no thank you very much Bailey. thank you very much kevin and uh, I look forward to engaging you uh, again. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. is a Grand Geeks production. It is produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and edited by Evan Wigdorowitz. It is presented by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and Karen Gammy. Music is done by Callum Cool and logo designed by Evan Wigdorowitz. The companion website is at www.softwareengineer.org.za.